0: This is the official SASTA podcast with me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and I always love to hear your thoughts and feedback on the show there. However, to the episode today, and I was lucky enough to have Byron Dieter on 20VC the other day, and when speaking about his incredible portfolio, we hit on one that I've wanted to have on the show for a long time now, so I'm thrilled to welcome Eric Christopher, founder and CEO of Zylo, to the hot seat today. Now, Xylo is a software management system built for the cloud, pioneering a new standard in software management. To date, Eric has raised over $12 million for Xylo from some of the best in the business, including Byron at Bessemer, Salesforce, GGV, Semmel at Haystack, and the team at High Alpha. Prior to founding Xylo, Eric was VP of Sales at Sprout Social, leading the revenue operations team there for over 11,000 customers. And before Sprout Social, he was VP of Sales at Shoutlet. Finally, prior to Shoutlet, Eric spent over seven years at Exact Target, watching their incredible hyper growth as a senior business development manager, which is where he met High Alpha's Scott Dorsey. I'd also want to say a huge thank you to Byron Dieter, to Scott Dorsey, and to Semmel Shaw for some fantastic questions, suggestions today. I really do so appreciate that. But before we dive into the episode today, did you know that more than half of your customers' digital time is spent on mobile? Well, that's why every digital brand needs a mobile strategy. But as an app marketer, you need to understand the true ROI of your mobile app to be able to make smarter decisions. Adjust takes the guesswork out and provides data-driven insights to drive more effective mobile campaigns, empowering mobile app marketers to convert and retain their most valuable users, answering core questions like, which marketing campaigns perform the best? Where are my most valuable users coming from? How can I boost my retention rates? Essentially, Adjust gives you the ability to make better informed marketing decisions, and if you want to learn more about the ways Adjust can help you drive more results for your mobile app, visit adjust.com forward slash sasta. And if Adjust covers the world of mobile, Lob's making the world programmable. Lob's software platform automates age-old offline business processes in a modern, intelligent, and technology-forward way. For example, they allow you to programmatically send personalized postcards, letters, and checks to your customers with comprehensive, per Piece mail tracking and analytics. But don't take my word for it. With clients like Booking.com, HelloFresh, SeatGeek, and more all loving it, there's no doubt on this one. Lob is the best platform there is for turning address quality and direct mail into competitive advantages for your business. Check it out today at Lob.com. And finally, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're talking to Roger Devine, co founder of SchoolAuction.net. SchoolAuction is the leading provider of software to help nonprofit groups like PTA animal shelters boys and girls clubs and chambers of commerce put on fundraising auctions hi harry
1: my advice to SaaS founders is this think frequently about what the scariest thing a competitor could do to disrupt your business of course we like to think of ourselves as disruptors but it's easy to let success add your company to the establishment in your industry before someone else takes aim at your existing business think about taking aim at it yourself Create a new brand or a new team to create that scary innovation
0: yourself. Love it, Roger. And absolutely, staying ahead of your competitors is critical for success. And another key element for success can be the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. However, that's quite enough of me. And so now I'm delighted to hand over to Eric Christopher, founder and CEO at Zylo. Good, that's perfect, okay, I think we're warmed up. Eric, it is such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I heard so many great things, both from Byron at Bessemer and from Scott Dorsey. So thank you so much for joining me today, Eric. Yeah, happy to be here. Thanks. I do want to get the ball rolling, though, Eric, with a little bit about you. And so tell me, how did you make your way into what we both know to be the wonderful world of SaaS and come to found Zylo? What was that aha moment? Yeah, great
1: questions. Um, so I, I lucked into SaaS all the way back in 2002 when it was called ASP, when the founders of Exact Target, Scott Dorsey and Chris Baggett, were kind of crazy enough to Hire me after college. And I was introduced to them luckily through an investor connection that I had after I had a failed startup in college to inspired me to, to, to join Exact Target at the time. After that, I spent the last eight years helping build two other startups, most recently Sprout Social in Chicago, and then decided to come full circle back with Scott and his uh, venture studio, High Alpha, to start Xylo.
0: Can I ask a, a strange question that's maybe slightly out there? And it's, why did you decide to start Xylo within a venture studio? It's a relatively innovative and new model. Why did you decide that over starting alone in the wild? Yeah. You know, I did
1: not seek out the studio model per se. So I think it helped that I had some relationship and trust with the team, particularly at the high alpha studio. But it, it certainly was, you know, as you think about taking the leap into being a founder of a company and assembling teams and things like that, it's an appeal situation when you think about you can maybe de-risk some of the things that really are hard in the early parts of building a startup and so the combined value that the studio and then you know kind of my experiences can bring together really really makes you believe you can grow faster and kind of looking back i think that that's certainly what's happened for us
0: totally no absolutely i do want to break the interview though upstate into a couple of different parts that i think we're both pretty passionate about i want to start on the granular element of scaling a specific function being the sales function i then want to move to scaling the wider org itself and then finish on the macro on the landscape and how it's changed does that work for you Eric yeah that's great okay so if we start on the scaling the sales team the single biggest question I get from early stage SaaS founders is always on the transition from founder to sales team so you've done this extremely successfully with Zylo so with the benefit of hindsight what were the biggest lessons from this
1: transition It's always a work in progress, by the way. But maybe you first start with why are founders successful in the beginning to sell? And and so founders are successful because really they're the most passionate about what they've created and they can say yes to really anything they want to early on. So that's kind of the advantages of of founder selling. Salespeople, they're not going to have those same superpowers. They can only say yes to a few things. And so what you need to do is make sure that you found something, a focus area that's repeatable and that you can teach them how to win. And then you've got to find find ways to allow them to learn that expertise through you, through uh, observing or or participating in the sales process. So the lesson learned is it's not about the revenue or the customer number as a signal. It's that you found a big focus area that you can win repeatedly and and, uh, teach others and then build a culture of winning.
0: Can I ask you a question? Well, two questions, actually, that I'm too interested not to. One is, I always have a problem as an investor in backing founders that can't sell their own product. Is that a short-sighted of me, do you think? Or do you think that's actually fair?
1: Yeah, I think it's kind of interesting. I think even think a lot of great product CEOs are really good at selling. You know, in today's day and age, it's about you believe in the technology and you can match it to values. It's not about the convincing sales rep or you know, kind of in the the old school view of a salesperson anymore. I mean, look at Eric at um, Eric Wan at Zoom, right? I mean, he's probably one of the best salespeople in the world, but it's also because he just believes in what he's doing and just builds a great product and is an evangelist about it. So I, I think it's a good signal that two things: if it's selling, it's because the product's so good and the, the founder is really good at it or they've, if they've worked to do on the product, they've at least, they're, they're passionate enough about it to sort of make it happen in the early days which you kind of want that in founders as well.
0: Totally. No, I do get you there. Can I ask also, when you realize that you have some form of repeatable process in terms of the sales process that works for you as the founder, do you document it along the way or do you find that it happens haphazardly and then when you realize that you need to hire a sales team, you then have yeah. to go back and document the process? Yeah, I think
1: it's a, a light documentation process. It, you find, you know, kind of a pattern that a lot of times it might be a trial or a proof of concept process that you start to see that if you can get each customer to go through a series of steps that they'll convert. And so most recently for us, we have this POC process where we just know kind of every 10 of those that we start, we're starting to understand, you know, how many are going to convert and the time period it takes. And so, you know, within that, there's lots of different steps and variations still at our stage, but just having that framework of a few milestones that, you know, can be readable that, that I think is enough for you to feel like you can start building sales teams around.
0: Totally. So in, in terms of kind of the building the sales team around, you've now done this with Zylo. So what were those big lessons for you, Eric? Yeah.
1: So you know, thinking about the lessons that I've learned is that, you know, you really have to listen to your gut and kind of, you know, when it's time to build sales and not just listen to like an investor or a board member that says, hey, it's time to hire your first VP of sales or maybe some SaaS metric or something like that. So I think it's something that, you know, sort of for me is is trusting my gut. And I think even if you're a product CEO can do that as well.
0: Totally get you. Can I ask in terms of like trusting your gut, how do you balance between trusting your gut and then also the advice you get given? Because when you have successful people like Scott Dorsey around you telling you now we need to hire sales, now we need to hire sales and you don't believe you've got a baked out process. How do you balance between advice and gut?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, um, I talk a lot about how gut is actually your set of experiences that you've had in life. I and mean, that's what your instincts are made up, right? It's not just like an emotional feeling. You're actually like kind of referencing your experience. And you as a founder, no matter if you're working with Scott Dorsey or Byron Dieter or anyone, right? For that matter, that has a lot of experience, they have a different set of experience that are that, and especially as investors, they, they see a lot of patterns and that's their value. They've, they've seen lots of different, different things that have happened. You know, maybe with Scott, he's an operator. He's had 10 years experience of exact target plus the patterns, but he's not at Zylo. He's not experiencing firsthand the things that we're seeing. And so as a founder, you just have to have confidence that every day that you're talking to customers and collecting that information, that information is just as powerful and just as influential. So you use your advisors to sort of balance like what you're experiencing against those patterns. And that is uh, to me the right balance. And that's kind of what the gut feel, you know, really means.
0: Totally. Can I ask, when you kind of do a a self-analysis maybe of the transition? Is there anything that you would have done differently?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I think that focusing a bit on the focus areas earlier and listening to those, you know, I mentioned, you know, you can kind of sort of say yes to everyone and you can kind of end up sort of having customers, you know, have different value points and things like that. And so I think focusing on what's that one big thing that every single customer in the world will want or that we believe and kind of focus in on that and then get reps to really focus on that versus trying to sell the entire broader vision like a founder would. And so we're doing that now successfully but it just felt like it took a little bit longer because you know we didn't really focus on that real one big thing kind of early on
0: no i totally get you in terms of that focus but you said that about kind of saying yes to everything and it brings me really to two questions that founders uh, always ask me when they think about the sales process specifically in early stage SaaS. and it's number one is the quality or the quantity of logos what should founders focus on as many as possible or that one or two brand names i
1: love this one so it depends on how you define quality of logo. The way that we define it and that I define it is it's a target profile customer that gets a lot of value immediately out of what what we do and will likely stay with us for a long time versus say uh, just a hot logo that investors think are great. And I think if you think of it that way and you then will look at that and say, okay, which uh, total addressable market is the best, right? Is it SMB or is it enterprise? You make that decision based on the fact that your profile fits either an SMB or enterprise and you have the conviction, and decisiveness to just pick one and then go build a monster business and not try to do everything to everyone. So I think, you know, the answer sometimes can be both, but really focusing on that will give you the answer. And then you can decide, is it a high volume play in the SMB or is it go after bigger customers?
0: Can I ask, do you think the quality of logos really works in terms of social validity? People, I think, often overemphasize how much having a big name logo actually brings in subsequent customers. Is that fair? Do you think it really is
1: incredible social validity? I think one thing that's kind of an interesting trend is is that a lot of early SaaS companies sell to a lot of other SaaS companies. And, you know, because they're early adopters, they're more willing to, to buy new technology and things like that. And so I do think quality of logos, kind of the brand matters. But the honest reality is a lot of the early startups have a lot of the same customers. And so I think, you know, investors or conviction of the business for the long term, you know, you, you really need to make sure that you've got a more of a, a type of customer that really does feel like it's going to be with you for the long term. So I think that it's really more about... Maybe if you're gonna say your enterprise, you know, do you have proof points that large, you know, Fortune five hundreds are adopting the product and then are they growing? Are they spending more? Are they seeing value where they they want to lock in for longer term contracts and be with you for the long haul and those sorts of things? So the logos are great, but you've got to kind of balance some proof points like how much money they're spending with you or what they're saying about the product and how it's changing their businesses and you know things like that. So it's kind of the story behind the logo, is the important thing, not the logo.
0: No, I I love that kind of story behind the Logan. Couldn't agree more in terms of customer case studies and their importance. I do want to ask another though, and it's one thing that we came back to saying yes to too much. It's the element of discounting. In the early days, you obviously have less leverage and brand to price strongly. How do you advise founders when it comes to discounting and what they should and maybe shouldn't accept? You really
1: can't avoid discounting discussions. That's just a reality of our business. I have a few rules of thumb that I follow. So the first one would be to ask for two things for the discount versus is one. So for example, a two-year agreement and logo rights are two good things that are uh, valuable to a business. And uh, and maybe another one might be time. you know Time is the silent killer of most startup. And so if you can get a customer to move forward and trade some time, maybe you can discount that to, to start getting to work. And then you can always fall back to one. So it's just kind of a good negotiation is ask for a lot for it because discounting and revenue are just really important. So that's a big ask and you should make sure you get something back from that. Um, the second thing that we do is we have a goal every quarter of, of we set a new minimum contract floor and then we also set a target to grow our average contract value just in general. And so if, if you keep those in mind and you're discounting, you're still growing your business, you're getting you know bigger, more value out of your customers um, and that sort of thing, but still able to use discounting to win business, which is important. Um, and I think just always remember to be disciplined and demonstrate value before you start discounting as well.
0: I couldn't agree more. You said about time being the silent killer there. A Agre- do you always insist on multi-year contracts being paid up front with that in mind
1: I'd say time is the silent killer and running out of cash. So I think cash collections are really important. So And a lot of larger companies are uh, completely okay with giving you two or three year payments all up front. And so I think that's a really good ask, especially for discounting, but also just a good ask in general. And the other thing too, that the long-term commitment, it gives you mutually... You're mutually set up between the customer and you as a SaaS provider to build for the long-term. And a lot of times in the early stage, you need customers that will be with you and want to invest in your product roadmap and commitments and things like that as well. So uh, that's another good reason to to really pursue a longer term contract.
0: No, I couldn't agree more. I think four-year paid up front would make me very happy. But I do want to move uh, one (laughs) level above the scaling of the sales team itself to more the scaling of the org because we chatted before. And when we chatted, you said to me that the employee 50 mark was a real difference for you. So Eric, why was that employee 50 mark so different for you? And what fundamentally changed? Yeah, I, I talked to other founders about this too. And it feels like others feel this
1: as well. Like the 50 is just kind of a good it's just a number that, that a lot of people have in common where things just sort of feel like they change. And are you familiar with the, the game of telephone? You know, you sit around the campfire and whisper into someone's ear and then when it comes back to you, it's something different than than what you originally said.
0: Totally. Absolutely. We call it something different in the UK, but uh, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, so yeah, and, and, and that's a real reality. You know, you, you all of a sudden, you know, you're not a, just a few pl- employees sitting around a conference table, able to just tell everyone what's going on with every customer engagement or, you know, what, product teams building and have quick company meetings uh, anytime that you want and that sort of thing and so at 50 it is that game of telephone begins to play out and and it's just it's more important and critical than ever to have a lot of discipline on how you communicate and how you're setting goals and making sure everyone's aligned in the division
0: totally agreed with you there so having been through that and having scaled through that process what do you advise subsequent SaaS founders who are maybe approaching that or looking at the next 12 months thinking that that's their ramp time I think the
1: most important thing to do as a founder is from day one. And then if you haven't done this already, you're kind of late and you need to focus on it is really invest in values and what you stand for. You need to really have your vision clearly articulated. And a lot of the key goals that are what you need to accomplish over the next quarter or year start towards that journey. And so doing that from day one, even though it might feel a little, say, big company, or as you start thinking about putting values on the wall and that sort of thing, the more that you institutionalize, that and put that into the DNA of the company the rewards are tremendous and so I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned from others and always remember to iterate on it constantly and grow and change and evolve as your company grows.
0: I'm really interested you said the word obviously grow there for you as the CEO it's a difficult transition to watch and to really be at the center of how have you seen your role alter and change with the growth of the company past this point And, and how have you adapted as a result?
1: I like to use a sports analogy for this you know very quickly as as a founder you move from a player to a player coach very quickly so you know in that role as a coach you're directly overseeing others work and before you know it you know at that employee 50 or you know as you're as you're growing before you know it you're a little bit more like a GM where you're not only responsible for the players on the court and the execution but now you're responsible for the coaching staff and then even thinking about next year's team and recruiting for it and what it's going to look like then and those the dynamics ahead so that's been you know something that very quickly was earlier than I expected and I've had to learn how to live in a current moment sometimes with mistakes that I've made one or two quarters in the past and you have to have the patience and control to be able to fix things going forward because you can't it's like when you're GM you know you're not the one you know making the game winning shot you're hoping that decisions you made and the people you put out there you know the ones that are you know finding the success so that's been kind of a really hard thing to, to sort of come come to uh to think about and how to manage some learning every day
0: and speaking of being that coach and if we carry on the sports analogy kind of putting the team on the field to shoot the hoops, I think is what you delightful Americans would say on basketball terms. But if we keep with that, in terms of like goal setting, how do you think about setting ambitious enough goals, which are really a stretch for the team and ambitious for them to hit, but then also not too ambitious where they'll be disincentivized when they potentially won't hit? How do you think about that balance?
1: This is such a hard one. I, I think that probably a topic that needs to be talked about a lot more, especially amongst like peer CEOs and stuff like that. But we use the popular goal setting framework Started at Google, the OKR, and, uh, and that's worked well for us. And we have a core value that we use called it's set big audacious goals." So, how we think about it, and that at an at early stage, you know, it's kind of hard, hard to set goals because you're starting from sort of scratch, right? And so, what we've done is we look at what world class growth looks like. So, you know, I you know speak to Byron about this, or Scott, or, or others, and then I really try to establish goals that could allow us to meet a very high bar, but set personal goals that kind of the sum of those will allow us a chance to hit that. And so that's just how I think about it is, you know, you look at your other, the nice thing about other SaaS companies publicly, you know, sharing metrics and hearing that for investors, you can kind of get an idea of what's possible. Um, and then you try to look to yourself and see, you know, can I come close to that or do we have a business that, that could exceed that? But that's how I think about it. And I constantly look for those signals of other growth rates and things like that, and then see if we can competitively keep up with that. It's kind of the way I look at it.
0: I'm really pleased you said that about competitively keeping up with growth rates and kind of that benchmarking element because when we chatted before you said to me about it being very different 2009 versus 2019 with regards to like the bar of execution and really the path to success just being fundamentally different come ask what makes 10 years ago so different to today what is it so I think about like in 2009 a success story like
1: that you'd see in the techcrunch and a big outcome would be that you built a, a billion dollar company over eight to ten years you know and, and it was a unicorn and it was very exceptional and there's very few. And, you know, you look at where we are today and how many, what was the number, you know, in your recent podcast with Byron, like he has 14 companies in his portfolio alone that are valued over a billion. And there's other great investors as well that have great track records. And so a real success story today is to build a billion dollar company, maybe over half that period of time or just a few years. And so the the outcomes, the size, the sheer growth, all those sorts of things are just, uh, it's a higher
0: bar. No question. Totally with you in terms of it being a higher bar. I I do have to ask, because I also spoke to, you know, me. I, I stalked the shit out of you before this show. And I <laughs> at Samuel Shaw as well. And he also said to me about fundraising outside of the Bay. And one of his questions was, what's the raw truth about raising a Series A when you're not in the Bay Area or New York? You know, there is no
1: question some disadvantages, you know, I would say, but they can be overcome. You just have to, to put in a plan and, and execute it. And when we raised our Series A, one of the investors I talked to that, that lives in the Bay Area asked me like, hey, are you, uh, you going to rent an apartment? met out here for a month or two and bring the family and come raise and stay out there. And I think the real reality is, is that you have to, first off, it's like, you need, there's going to be a certain profile of investor that likes and maybe even prefers to invest out of the Bay Area. There's are some that love that. And there's many also that really just, and even told me directly, they just really want There's enough opportunities and investments to make in the Bay Area and they're just kind of stick there. And that's fine too. So the key is that you have to run a, a real process where you talk to a lot of investors. And kind of shake out, you know, profile a fit of people. I want an investor that wants to come and build the company, support, you know, the, the technology community in Indianapolis, uh, Indiana, where we're based. And Byron was one of those individuals. I also think that the kind of always fundraising and relationship building is really important. So every time that you're in, you know, that I travel to San Francisco or New York or other markets, you know, typically I'm meeting with investors to build relationships and kind of find those attributes out of someone that wants to invest out of the Bay Area. So it's uh, certainly a something you have to overcompensate with when you're not able to just take, grab a coffee down the street with uh, with most of the investors that are in the Bay Area.
0: Can I ask, is it actually not also quite helpful to be outside of the Bay Area for the always be raising? Because then at least there's kind of real deliberate intention to your meeting with investors, even for a coffee where they've deliberately sought you out. It's booked a long time ahead with your dates for that trip compared to wasting endless hours just because an investor's in the next door block and it works and is much yeah. more haphazard.
1: Yeah, that's a good question. I, I do think that... Because cause we're not there every day that, that when we are in town, it's maybe a bit more of a special opportunity to meet us and, and see, you know, kind of what we're building and stuff like that. And one thing I would say too, is that as much as like, you know, we t- I just mentioned how, you know, you might have a Bay Area investor that's not interested in investing, you know, maybe in the Midwest or something like that. All of them have generally, you know, been helpful and are willing to meet and, you know, give, give me great ideas about the business and things like that. So I think that like sort of generosity of time and, and things like that, cause that's so hard for everyone. Everyone's so busy that the, the fact that I'm not there every, single, you know, week and day helps to uh, get some of those meetings. So, you know, it, I tend to have a lot of luck if, uh, you know, through, through the network of someone being interested in learning about our business for sure.
0: Totally with you. No, that makes a lot of sense. But I do want to move into my favorite element, which is the 60 second Saster. So I say a short statement and then you hit me with your immediate thoughts. Are you ready to roll? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. So what do you know now that you maybe wish you'd known at the beginning of your founding with Zylo? So every
1: stage is really hard of our business and um, building a company. And so enjoy every stage because they're all hard and just keep the average uh, curve in mind and don't dwell on the ups and downs that are just inevitable of of being a founder.
0: My favorite myth of all is it gets easier. I've never found it ever gets easier. (laughs) It's not true. (laughs) (laughs) They lied to you. What is the toughest role to hire for today and why? Data
1: science. We are uh, growing our team, building it. It's a big big priority for us. Really competitive process with the candidates and many candidates are international. So, you know, you're dealing with visa issues and all the challenges with that so that's that's top of mind
0: if the money's on the table take it agree or disagree i'm gonna say take it but only if you have
1: a number in mind and the ideal fit clear in your mind of what that is you know whether you're selling a deal or selling your company but really have like be purposeful and and have that in mind and if not then uh stick
0: with it and build value and don't look back love that nuance brilliant in the middle there (laughs) what is dark mode the biggest killer product feature for 2019
1: (laughs) you might have read my tweet earlier this year Um, i did indeed i was kind of just the running joke that every like major world class company is that's their roadmap feature it's like apple slack so it's like every, everywhere you look that's the innovative feature that everyone's launching but i do think it's quite needed because everybody needs more sleep and i think that dark mode is supposed to help it uh, with that or something like that
0: that's hilarious and then i want to finish on building xylo outside of the valley we touched on it before what's the one biggest pro and what's the one biggest con
1: pro i think the biggest pro is that you can focus more with less noise i've got a few different things like cost and you know some of those kind of things but that's the i think a really advantage that we have and con would be i think a lot of great companies
0: are overlooked by vcs and things for some of the things we mentioned earlier i couldn't agree with you more in terms of some of them being overlooked but uh, as i said i had so many great things both from scott from samuel from byron Uh, it's been so much fun having you on the show so thank you so much for joining me thank you very much Absolutely loved having Eric on the show there and such exciting times ahead for Zylo. And if you'd like to see more from us behind the scenes here at do you can on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. I do love to see you there. But before we leave you today, did you know that more than half of your customers' digital time is spent on mobile? Well, that's why every digital brand needs a mobile strategy. But as an app marketer, you need to understand the true ROI of your mobile app to be able to make smarter decisions. Adjust takes the guesswork out and provides data-driven insights to drive more effective mobile campaigns, empowering mobile, app marketers to convert and retain their most valuable users, answering core questions like, which marketing campaigns perform the best? Where are my most valuable users coming from? How can I boost my retention rates? Essentially, Adjust gives you the ability to make better informed marketing decisions and if you want to learn more about the ways Adjust can help you drive more results for your mobile app, visit adjust.com forward slash Saster. And if Adjust covers the world of mobile, Lob's making the world programmable, Lob's software platform automates age-old offline business processes in a modern, intelligent, and technology-forward way. Way. For example, they allow you to programmatically send personalized postcards, letters, and checks to your customers with comprehensive per-piece mail tracking and analytics. But don't take my word for it. With clients like Booking.com, HelloFresh, SeatGeek, and more all loving it, there's no doubt on this one. Lob is the best platform there is for turning address quality and direct mail into competitive advantages for your business. Check it out today at lob.com. And finally, every week we talk briefly to a WePay partner in a mini series to get their best advice on achieving success. Currently, we're Talking to Roger Devine, co-founder of SchoolAuction.net. SchoolAuction is the leading provider of software to help nonprofit groups like PTAs, animal shelters, boys and girls clubs, and chambers of commerce put on fundraising auctions. Hi, Harry. My
1: advice to fast founders is this: think frequently about what the scariest thing a competitor could do to disrupt your business. Of course, we like to think of ourselves as disruptors, but it's easy to let success add your company to the establishment in your industry.
0: Before someone else takes aim at your existing business, think
1: about taking aim at it yourself. Create a new brand or a new team to create that
0: scary innovation yourself. Love it, Roger. And absolutely, staying ahead of your competitors is critical for success. And another key element for success can be the combination of WePay and Chase, which means payments you can bank on. To find out how you can add benefits like Chase Pay and more to your payment solution, visit WePay.com forward slash Harry. That's WePay.com forward slash Harry. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your support, and I can't wait to bring you a phenomenal episode next week, really diving into the sales process.